morning, everybody, and welcome to Rising. I'm being told we have the best Thursday show you've ever seen. So, Brianna, can we live up to the hype? Of course. It's our sworn duty to try, at least. Okay. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. Our all-star panelists will discuss Biden's new executive order aimed at protecting transgender youth, and we'll discuss child vaccinations. But speaking of COVID, White House uh, infectious disease expert Dr. Anthony Fauci has tested positive for the virus. According to the NIH, Fauci is only experiencing mild symptoms and is being treated with Paxlovid, adding that he will isolate and continue to work from home. They also said Fauci has not been in close contact with the president. Hmm. Some have pointed to the timing of Dr. Fauci's diagnosis. The twice-boosted doctor was set to testify in front of the Senate Health Committee today. Senator Rand Paul, who was previously sparred with Dr. Fauci, sits on that committee. Dr. Fauci will now be participating virtually, and of course, we wish him a speedy recovery. Uh, he's very, very vaccinated, so he's just expected to have only mild um, disease. I can't help but think, though, you know, look, he was very cautious, very most probably mask-wearing public official there is. Still got it. Still now, got it. Robbie, Robbie, you're, can't an, stop you're it. an intelligent person. Okay. You know. I don't, like, I don't like where this is going. <laughs> you know that the logic isn't that if you are safe, that means you absolutely will never get COVID. Yeah, because it you will you get it. It means you lower the odds that you're going to get it or get it as regularly. And I was frankly surprised to learn that this was the first time that he's gotten it all of COVID. Most folks, especially folks who are, you know, going into an office every day, I feel like have already succumbed. Yeah. Because so, everybody has or will get it. It's not a voice. I'm, I'm only speaking. I'm not speaking to you. I'm speaking who, who to Who has the, not yet gotten COVID. Well, your time will come, my friend. Your time will come. It's not avoidable. Look, it's not a moral failing. It's not a moral failing. And I'm not morally superior for not having gotten it. I've said repeatedly that I think that there are things about my life that make it easier for me to avoid COVID. I don't live with anybody. Yada, yada, yada. I haven't been going into an office until mm-hmm. coming here to Rising. Yeah. All of you sit next to me now, so you've upped I, your risk uh, uh, profile <laughs> considerably. I, I am aware. <laughs> But all that being said, I don't know, there is something a little frustrating about the idea that, you know, this is going to be used as proof positive that the kinds of safety measures that he's been recommending don't work to minimize your risk of getting COVID or make it so that you don't get it as frequently as some people have gotten it. I totally take that point. But some people act as if right, it's the end of the world still, like the, the long COVID type people, and which, you know, it can be a concern, but it's not, what, what can you do? You can't the, stop yourself from getting it. What are the long COVID type people? Are you skeptical that long COVID is a disease or something that we should be concerned about? I'm skeptical that it's as pervasive and serious as people claim because people are very bad at self-diagnosis. And there, some of the studies so far have suggested people complaining about long COVID symptoms. Some of them hadn't even had it. Now, I'm not saying it's made up or it's in your head or certainly there are long running complications you can have from a respiratory disease. Probably, uh, that's probably true of past diseases, uh, or even the flu, regular things we've been dealing with for a long time. You can be enduringly ill and it, you know, be hard to explain. I mean, there's debates still about the reality of some disease with this uh, Lyme disease or what Ross Douthat wrote about in his book. Um, well, it's, it's right. People have different uh, opinions about this. My, my point was not to call that into question, but 
you can't avoid COVID. You just, you can reduce your, you maybe delay, and it was great we could de really delay it until people were vaccinated because it wasn't as contagious, but now it's so contagious. The, the newer variants are more easily spread. When the wave comes through, everybody All gets it, unless, except the absolute shut-ins. I think all of that is true, which is, I think, a reason why people are not as able to rely on herd immunity as they once thought they would be, and why masking and other kinds of interventions that people want to take on their own volition make more sense now than they perhaps had even in the recent past. Mask I think, makes more. I don't. Mask don't. I don't think masks make more sense now. If if herd immunity isn't as protective as it used to be then I think that people are going to be less reliant on the idea that I'm probably not going to get it because I've gotten it recently. Because some of the studies that show that the, the you know, the, the newer variant, the, you know, the newer variants just basically aren't uh, as uh, uh, resistant to the antibodies people have brought, mm -hmm. uh, built up in the past. It would make me, like, I remember when we first got boosted last summer, I really felt like vaccine boosted. It was, I was, it was free reign to go out to the world. Like, I really felt safe and protected yeah, in a way that is not really the case anymore. Now I feel like, well, if I get exposed to it, it's a high likelihood that I'm actually going to get it, you know, as opposed to... Well, because you haven't had it yet. If you, I, I know you can get it again, but having had it does provide some protective no, and immunity. We should, we should do a I mean, segment I, on that. And, well, I mean, we don't, we don't, nobody wanna, knows exactly how much, even the but experts... The, the recent different. studies show that, that getting COVID is now less protective than they thought with respect to the recent vi uh, variants, but I don't want to get too many into the details of that because we don't have, you know, yeah. that, that's not a segment we're doing right now. Uh, but the point of the matter is people have the individual choice to do what they're going to do. I think masking makes more sense now that your natural immunity is not as protective as people once thought it was. But the real question I want to ask you is how big of a risk of long COVID does there have to be for you to think that people are reasonable and wanting to protect themselves? Because I know that a lot of people had risks about the vaccines themselves, some of which are legitimate with the, myocard the cardi uh, cardi uh, cardiological issues and yes. things like that that happens. Um, and, but those were also in a very small percentage of the population. And frankly, a smaller risk than people who actually get COVID have those same kinds of heart, uh, long-term heart issues. So if that small risk is enough for people to have legitimate concerns about getting the vaccine, why is it that perhaps a similarly small risk of having long COVID is it enough to make people want to be protective uh, about the prophylactic things they can do to prevent Well, obviously, COVID? I think in both cases, it should be your choice. I, you know, you should do whatever is right for you. Um, but you, you can you can choose to not get the vaccine. I'm saying you can't really choose to not get COVID. And people need to get out of the mindset that it is this framing, easily, that this is an avoidable thing. It's not avoidable. It, it's just, it's the it, fate of all people it, that, to eventually you, you get it. You can't just say that, like, and make well, it, it true. Is. It's not, it's literally not. And I, you're forcing me into a position where I'm, you're making it sound like I'm making an argument that it's completely possible and very highly likely that you'll never get it. But there is a huge difference between getting it three times a year, the way that some people have, and getting it once in the, in the last two years, like Dr. Fauci has done. Getting it three times in one year is, is not a common occurrence as far as I can tell. Are you kidding me? People have gotten it multiple times. People, people say all sorts of things. People could have had it and not rec actually recovered from it because they have, COVID? just once. Once, and I, I, I've been, I've had uh, other respiratory issues. I've, I, I've taken tests a thousand times. I, I would know if I'd had it more than once. I had it the one time, um, and, uh, and, and that was back in July. And then in, in December, I mean, I, I, I was living with someone who had it at the t when the Omicron came through. She, uh, my wife, she was, she had it. I didn't get it. It took no precautions to not get it in the same 
uh, living experiences hurt because I suspect my, I did have some protection from the previous infection. So look, I, it's different for every people. Some people are more prone to illness than others. I actually yeah. think I am a fairly prone to illness person. I've only had it the one time. And look, so people, different standards will make sense for different people. Vaccination is probably a good option. I think even for many young people, some young people, certainly, uh, who have pre-existing conditions or who are morbidly obese from looking at the, se- the severe uh, disease uh, uh, rates among young people, I, I-, I absolutely think if it were my kid, I might give it to them depending on what their health circumstance is. So it- this is not a – anyone – Everyone will have different what makes sense for them. So we're just talking about the level of government policy. But well, we're not actually. We're talking about whether or not we can read into Dr. Fauci having gotten COVID, uh, an indictment of COVID. I mean, if it, was up COVID, to, if it was up to Dr. Fauci, measure. we would have, you know, vaccine requirements for everyone on no, the planet. No, no, no. And we would have masking requirements <laughs> for everyone on the planet. That's and we would not have... actually what we're talking about. We're talking well, but about that's whether true. or not people can take the, whether Dr. Fauci getting COVID raises the implication that the preventative measures that Dr. Fauci has been recommending don't actually work. The preventative measures that Dr. Fauci was recommending for 95% of the pandemic don't work that well, right? Remember, any yeah, some, ma- t- wear I a mask, any mask was the message for, what, a year and a half? Yeah, and I and agree that now that, that is false. Accurate. That is no longer accurate information. So I, I for most that. of the pandemic, what they were saying is not accurate. I agree with that, which is a real shame because I do think that some skepticism about Dr. Fauci, the misinformation that's been coming out of the White House, has led people not to think that high-quality masks, KN95 and higher masks, aren't effective, that the kinds of, you know, some people are, you know, it, it can also be transmitted through your eyes. Some of the concerns uh, what, about what, what happens What is your level airplanes. of confidence that we won't later learn that that guidance, too, is not accurate? I'm, I'm not, I don't know, but this is ha- every time. Like, at first it was don't wear masks, uh, they're pointless. Then it was, no, wear a mask absolutely everywhere. Any mask, though. Just, just yeah. Now it's, no, now that's all useless. Now you have to wear a really good mask. Are you absolutely confident that we won't later learn also that, that there's something wrong about that guidance? Well, no, I do think that you know I've saying? been a very vigilant you know, masker with high-quality masks throughout because I use my own judgment and always use high-quality masks. And as we've discussed, it has worked for me so far, so that gives me a measure of confidence. But at, the, at bottom, the fact that the uh, prophylactic measures are so not inconvenient— to me personally, mm-hmm. I find the barrier to doing it so not that big a deal. But it doesn't, I don't do need then. a huge demonstration of proof. If it later comes out that I was wearing these masks and it wasn't doing anything, oh well, guess what? I haven't had a cold for two years either, so it's That's been fine. pretty good. <laughs> it was doing something for well, me. I different, feel. different people are different, but for me, it is a tremendous barrier to being able to interact with people and even like understand what people are saying. And I would, I would rather get a cold three times a year than ever wear, wear one again. Right. So well, Pick your poison, quite literally. <laughs> All right, well, stay tuned because we'll be back with more Rising right after this. Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, Robbie, you know that meme, the worst person you know, just made a great point? <laughs> well, yesterday, Republican Iraq war hawk Bill Kristol made an observation that was so not terrible that it actually got co-signed by New York Congresswoman AOC. Not to sound like AOC or something, he tweeted, tagging AOC somewhat thirstily in the tweet. But the degree to which the Republican Party has become a party of performative populism layered over unabashed oligarchy is pretty striking. 
Now, he was specifically referring to the fact that the Republican governor of Montana, Greg Gianforte, has been out of the country while the state endures flooding so extensive that the acting governor signed an executive order declaring a statewide disaster. But Crystal could have been referring to any number of things. Billionaires like Rick Caruso and Michael Bloomberg buying elections. The influence of big moneyed interest on elections post-Citizens United. Billionaires like Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, and Jeffrey Bezos controlling the media, for instance. After all, since the corporate bailouts of the 2008 recession and the Occupy movement that sprung from it, American left populists have been ringing the alarm bell on the fact that democracy is dead. The thing is, though, it's not just the Republican Party that's overtaken by oligarchs. It's our entire two-party system. Now, it doesn't always feel like both parties are equally corrupted. Democrats, on the whole, are more subtle about their attacks on the social safety net, and they tend to use their superficial support for historically marginalized groups as a shield against critique. Hey, they say, at least we're nicer to gays and black folks than the Republicans, Republicans are. On the other hand, some Republican electeds have been smart enough to pick up on growing frustration among the American public for establishment politics, and they've been making gestures toward embracing a sort of working class politics, even if it's mostly rhetoric with very little follow through. We love working people, they say, as they come up with excuse after excuse not to raise the minimum wage while rejecting a windfall profit tax on corporations exploiting the oil crisis to make profit. Now, with Democrats doubling down on their courtship of suburban educated elites and relying on a plan to scare minorities into voting blue no matter who, <laughs> Republicans don't need to do that much to seem like the better alternative to millions of voters who previously identified as Democrats are, or independents. After all, it seems obvious to most folks not named Joe Biden that the system is broken and no one likes to be gaslit. We know the system is broken because a full-time minimum wage salary can't get a worker a one-bedroom rental in 93% of counties nationwide. And two bedrooms are completely off the table. And since the average minimum wage worker is a 35-year-old white woman and 28% of minimum wage workers have children, low wages represent a real threat to the American family. We know the system is broken because in 2020, a CEO earned 351 times more than the typical worker. In 1965, it was just 15 to 1. CEO pay has grown 940%, while worker pay has only risen 12% during that time. We know the system is broken because in 1980, the average cost of a four-year college degree was a little over $10,000. It's three times that now. And adjusting for inflation doesn't solve the problem. Average college tuition and fees have increased by 1,200% since 1980. Inflation's just up 236%. We know the system is broken because a Princeton study proved way back in 2014 that America is not a democracy at all. It's an oligarchy. And why do I say that? What does that mean? Well, what the people want has an almost zero effect on what our democratically elected officials actually do. Per the study, a proposed policy change with low support among economically elite Americans is adopted only about 18% of the time, while a proposed change with high support among elite Americans is adopted about 45% of the time. In other words, when rich people want something, they get it. 
When poor or working class people want something, they're SOL. But enough with the doom and gloom, I don't have to belabor the bleak statistics. You're living them. Maybe you're a 40-year-old millennial who's never owned a home. Only 43% of us are homeowners after all, compared to nearly 80% of baby boomers. Or maybe you're a senior on a fixed income concerned about Biden's plan to hike Medicare premiums right before midterms. <laughs> the point is that Crystal is on to something. The Republican Party is performative populism covering for unabashed oligarchy. What both he and AOC fail to say, though, is that it's not just Republicans. It is crucial that people who understand that establishment politics are broken not pull punches when it comes to holding one side or the other accountable. It might be Lindsey Graham trying to cut Social Security and Medicare this week, but as David Sirota pointed out in The Lever, a dozen years ago, Barack Obama and Vice President Biden held a ceremony at the White House to announce a commission to try to slash Social Security and Medicare. But for a sustained campaign led by Bernie Sanders, which included a threat to primary Barack Obama, Democrats, Democrats might have succeeded. Too often, efforts to make life harder for working people are bipartisan efforts. And partisan sniping allows establishment politicians to pass off blame like a hot potato, while no one is ever held accountable. Is Biden doing enough to address inflation? No. But are Republicans offering a viable solution? Also no. Moreover, those of us in the media who are willing to point this out are often attacked by establishment punditry, accused of being in the tank for the other side, even as our criticisms are bipartisan. Wanting to hold Biden accountable to his campaign promises might get you called the Candace Owens of the left, at least if you're black. Explaining why Tucker Carlson is appealing to so many viewers recently caused the co-founder of a popular left media site to accuse me of not being a leftist at all yesterday. The mainstream media is disgusting in how they shut out progressives. Um, in terms of the right wing, no, no, no. Brianna Joy Gray, unfortunately, uh, is one of the people that are in the now the fake left. And uh, so this has become a whole uh, niche part of the industry. So Jimmy Dore, Glenn Greenwald, Brianna Joy Gray, and a couple of others in there. Oh, well, <laughs> here's the thing. I don't care what you call me, a leftist, a fake leftist, a progressive, left populist, an independent, a socialist. I've used most of those labels at some point or another. What's important is less how you define folks than that we all collectively keep our eye on the following. Where do elected officials get their money? Who's paying them? Are media figures merely critics or are they offering affirmative solutions to the real problems Americans across the political spectrum have identified? Are excuses like how do you pay for it leveraged evenly or only when it comes to helping out American workers? not when it comes to bailing out banks or funding regime change wars. Do all the reasons floated for why a middle-class life is inaccessible today make sense in light of the fact that just 50 years ago, our country was structured differently, taxes on the rich were higher, social spending was higher, unionization was higher, and the middle class was living easier? Could it be that the people telling you things can't get better are self-serving? regardless of whether there is an R or a D behind their names. 
it is imperative that we keep talking to each other, that we not go into our respective silos, and that we treat everyone who, not, not treat everyone who disagrees with us as a, as a mortal enemy, as some of my colleagues in left media might recommend. When we do that, we stop being a community. We stop being an American people. We've already lost our democracy, according to the fellows at Princeton. If we completely lose our sense of belonging to an American community that can communicate with each other, that strives to be better together, what's left? This isn't a left-right conflict we're in, it's a top-down one. More and more people are realizing this, and that's something to be hopeful about. The trick now is to not let bad faith actors exploit this sincere desire for working class politics and use it to deliver more of the same. So I did this because I, I felt as though. You're a fake leftist. You're I, have to vacate that chair for someone else. I know. But these kind of purity <laughs> tests, they get trotted out as I've observed them. Every time there is someone who is even making an attempt to understand the other side, to dialogue with the other side, and to come with solutions, and to be willing to be critical of one's own party. Yeah. That's what sets people off. That's what sets the Soledad O'Briens of the world off. Not anything substantively I've said, because they, ne they never talk about anything specific. It's the idea that by even being in dialogue with other people, you are somehow, by definition, throwing your own community and interests under the bus. Yeah, uh, our uh, Rising Fridays co-host Ryan Grimm had a great article in The Intercept this week about the kind of struggle session mindset that prevails in some of these progressive activist circles that's like, like a caricature, you know, of what you would, of what someone on my side would say is going on. And then you really go, oh, there's a lot of that going on, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the problem is that it's elite capture. Yeah. It's these people at these institutions, it's not a, what I think is a broader, authentic left movement. It's these, you know, kids at Oberlin or whatever who are populating a lot of these left groups and these media institutions that have elite interests because they are elites and they are co opting the priorities of the identity groups that they might technically belong to, but they don't have the same interests as those groups. So, you know, affluent, you know, black people on TV or affluent LGBT people on TV focus the conversation toward things that aren't the immediate interest of working class people in all of those groups. And I talk about this with Pascal Robert actually on my podcast today, who he gets into the, the history of how movements have been co-opted in exactly that way and how identity oftentimes collapses the real meaningful differences, class differences between the people who are advocating for these groups at the top and what's really going on down on the, on the streets. Yeah, I, the, the effect is pretty clear at this point that working class people feel a declining affinity for the Democratic Party. They are increasingly being captured by the Republican Party, which you know, from your perspective, it should, should not happen given the relative uh, positions of the parties. And it, I mean, it, it speaks to, I think, I know we've talked about this a lot, but it, 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 it just is the effect, right? That the many working class people feel that they don't trust the Democratic Party or they've overreached on cultural issues or they don't you know, trust what their policies are for taking care of their families or whatever it is. And, uh, and that's a huge problem for the Democratic Party because then it's just going to, it's becoming increasingly reliant on right, the, the affluent white liberals. And that's by choice. Right. That's by choice. They don't, they've chosen not to respect their base. They've chosen to write them off as 
stupid rubes right. who don't know better. And, and none they, of us like the policies of affluent white liberals. Nobody, no, nobody, nobody does. <laughs> nobody <laughs> does. It's the most uniting thing of all. And they don't, they don't trust that if they were actually just to deliver, that they could actually mm-hmm. best Republicans on some of these um, culture issues. And then meanwhile, the bar is so low that Republicans can get a, away with yeah, performatively that, signaling populist politics. that, it, And they can get away with massively overreaching on their response to culture issues that some of their zanier, crazier people in their yeah. base want because right now the Democratic Party is so screwed they can do whatever they want. Yeah. And that will be horrifying. <laughs> well, we'll have more rising right after this. Yesterday, Mayra Flores stunned the political world when the Mexican-born Republican won Texas's 24th district in a special election, flipping a traditionally blue seat for the first time in 40 years. However, the ladies on The View refused to recognize Flores' win when discussing the red wave with Trump administration alum and rising contributor Alyssa Farah. Let's watch that. So, but here's what I would warn. The red wave is coming. Republicans are going to win the midterms short of something unforeseen that I cannot predict now. Why? You don't know that. You don't know that. All the polling is suggesting that. It's the high gas prices, inflation, and I'm hoping... Let's wait and see what the people... Let's wait and see what the people voted. I understand what you're saying, but let's let people... Let's remind people it's up to them to make this decision, but in your, yeah. Yes, exactly, exactly. It's up to the voters. I would just love to see principled Republicans who are not so beholden to Trump win, but last night makes it look like it's going to be people who deny that the election was even won by Joe Biden. And then later, there's another clip where someone, uh, one of the other, Anna or Sonny, says... um, that, well, the people haven't seen the, the full January, something like, the people haven't seen the full January 6th uh, hearing yet. So, you know, maybe that, that so I, I don't know, Brianna, I, I'm sure you're resting easy. <laughs> you were very worried about Democrats' chances, but you know that we haven't finished the January 6th hearings. And then, oh boy, they're going to really be cleaning after the American people learn the truth, uh, finally, about, about what happened. That clip teaches you so much about the psychology of the American liberal. Like, look, I like Joy Bear. I think she's the funny one. And she's the only one that was even halfway nice to Bernie Sanders. But what kind of mind space is she living in where she thinks that, you know, far as simply saying polls don't look good for Democrats, something that has been the case long, since long before right. these, this inflation crisis, because that's just the nature of the beast. Typically, these things are cyclical and the party in power loses seats in midterms. That's not a value judgment. That's just an accounting of history and the way the world works. To hear someone say a statement that anodyne and have immediately all the other ladies jump on her, no, 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 we, we got to wait to see how it shakes out. We got to remind people that it's their democratic choice. Da, 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 da. You cannot have a conversation. You cannot have any kind of discourse that is at all useful or informative to the people who are watching this show if the defensiveness about your own party is so intense that you can't even let it sink in that you're facing an uphill battle in the midterm season. Yeah. I mean, it's a weird, it's almost a weird position even for a talk show host to have. Like, what is she, an operative of the party where you're, <laughs> you're the guest on the show whose only job is to, like, defend the party at all costs? It's, it's, it's myopic. Like you said, the Democrats would be in trouble in, under a normal circumstance. Everything was fine. This could end up being a rough 
uh, midterm for them because that's just usually how it is. And in fact, everything is not fine. Everything is just about as bad as it could possibly be from the perspective of, of working people. Yeah. So it's, it's, like it's going to be a bloodbath. True, we don't know for sure. Something yeah, dramatic could happen. The situation could improve. But, it's, but what's not going to change it is finding out whatever comes from these, these hearings, which I, we actually haven't been covering that much. I don't find them very interesting. I've been you know, paying attention to what they're saying on cable news about them. But look, there's no great mystery for what happened. We know what happened. Oh, I think we know what happened. Very, very de- decisively, Trump s- stoked, encouraged a mob of people. Uh, he, he told them lies. He told them things that were not true. And then he exhorted them to take some action. And then they did what they did. And it was immoral and reckless and irresponsible. And he should never be president again. And he should have been removed as president for it. Well, look, I think that's, that's it. But they didn't. He was acquitted. He was essentially acquitted. I think that's something that is, is well and good for many, many people. But the point that I've heard folks make, and I think it's fairly true, is that there are there's a significant segment of this country that does not know what you just said. And who, if you've been exclusively watching and consuming conservative media, you're not getting even the basic framework that acknowledges any of the bad actions, even of the most grievous offenders here. And so you think that there were legitimate concerns about the, you know, about the integrity of the election and that when Donald Trump, no, no, I think a lot of people do believe that Mm -hmm. because that's the messaging that they're getting on the the main, on the, on the conservative news networks and that there is some utility to presenting the news as is being presented in these hearings and to having people who are conservative and do have some trust within the conservative factions saying very clear statements about who was lying to who where and laying out the evidence the way, you know, Liz Cheney and Bill Bill Barr. I guess maybe with maybe with Barr, but Liz Cheney doesn't have she has more credibility among the hosts of The View than she does. That's that's entirely true. But I think the Bill Barr testimony was something to a lot of people. Again, it depends on if it's actually being shown on Fox News and if people are actually seeing it. Um, but that also the congressman who said he didn't give a tour the morning, uh, the morning beforehand, um, who was now on tape being shown giving the tour, being caught in these bold-faced lies, I think that that could potentially have, have some effect. Um, but the bigger issue, uh, I think, for much of the country is what's going to be happening district to district. The district Flores flipped is an 85% Hispanic county that was won by Hillary Clinton in 2016 and Joe Biden in 2020 signaling that Texas Latinos are perhaps through with Team Blue. While discussing how to win the minority vote on MSNBC with Nicole Wallace, one guest suggested that scaring people into voting Democrat might be the best choice. Campaigns, we gotta, we got to give them a reason to feel they have skin in the game, that this is important to them, that losing democracy is important to them. And whether it be not, whether or not it be telling women that, you know what, women, you think you're losing your rights now, what what do you think is going to happen if we if we don't have democracy? You know what, African Americans, particularly African American men, who are showing the lowest motivation to turn out in this midterm, you think things are are tough for you right now? Where do you think you're going to stand in a, in a, in a country in, a, in America where there where there's no democracy, where they have absolutely no interest? or at all in and respecting your respecting your respecting your rights we've got to get let these people understand that they've got skin in this game and they've got and they got we got scared the hell out of them because quite quite frankly nicole they should be afraid that we're going to lose our democracy 
Losing our democracy seems like too abstract a concept to be a viable political <laughs> message to win back working class people who are concerned about the price of goods and maybe health care and maybe child care and things like that. But what can I say? I'm not as brilliant as uh, that guy, I'm look, sure. Look, Robbie, but black men and women of childbearing years are not scared enough. They just need to be more afraid. If they were more afraid, it would help the Democratic Party. Look, part of the issue here is that commentators like this, for reasons that we were talking about um, at a different point in the show, are so detached from working class issues that it's difficult for them to imagine that the priorities of a black man or a woman might not exclusively be criminal justice issues or reproductive rights. Not that the Democratic Party is really doing that right. much in the way of re, uh, criminal justice issues right. or reproductive rights. I'll, I'll he, didn't even, even, he didn't even say those things. He said like things that matter to political scientists or theory. I, well, he's being a little excited women and black right. men. I, I suspect I because he, was, he sees them as particularly vulnerable right. to conservative policies, which is true. But it, 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 it's too reductive. The average person whether they be a woman or a black man or any other historically marginalized group, is also focused on the fact that ec ec the economy and wages are bound up in all of the persecution that they face. Okay, so we talk a lot about how in the reproductive rights space, affluent women can go to states where they still have the right to choose to get an abortion. Well, this is going to disproportionately, if Roe is ended, disproportionately affect working class women. When we talk about criminal justice issues, you get people like Philando Castile who end up getting shot in part because they're pulled over by the cops so many times because of all the violations on their vehicle because he can't get his taillight fixed because he's a, he doesn't have the money for all the citations. He's a, um, a cafeteria worker in a public school. You know, and Democrats never want to talk about those things. I, I mentioned in my radar that the average the average uh, minimum wage earner is a 35-year-old white woman, a over a quarter of whom have children. You know, and so we could be talking about the American family. We could be talking about, you know, how to bring back, you know, even a traditional values in a way that conservatives might like, because all the people who were the bedrocks of those families are unable to afford housing or even put food in their kids' mouths. But instead, we have these abstract principles like defending democracy, democracy. as though we're all mean? columnists. Right. For the Atlantic. Right. And the, the threat, also the threat that the Republicans have to cheat or something to win, like that's not, they might just win. <laughs> like I, I know the, the fear is that Trump is going to run, be the nominee, and, you know, have set up the system or he has his most loyal people in the ballot. What if he just wins because yeah. everyone hates Biden and his policies? Yeah, I mean, he did win once before. Right. He won once. <laughs> and, uh, and, and un under... Right, under circumstances that were probably more uh, more favorable to the other side than they are what were his, we don't know, what he's going right. to face in 2024. Um, so it's just not, this idea that that I think some Democrats, like the kind of people who are sometimes on The View and on MSNBC, have that we right, our, our policies are so, they're loved by our audience, I guess, our very elite audience. The only way we could we could lose is if, if it's there's cheating or it's stolen. Could, but but under under the normal or as close to normal democracy, yeah. we don't have a pure you know obviously don't have a pure majority vote. We have the odd system we have. But under the odd system we have, Republicans could just win, and they could win decisively. Yeah, and that you might actually have to make a case to right. your base and to the broader American public as to why you should win instead of just saying Scare be, afraid. be afraid, be afraid, be very afraid. <laughs> Stay tuned. We'll have more rising for you after this. Mwahaha. <laughs> Thank you.
Yesterday, President Biden signed a new executive order directing the Department of Health and Human Services to release guidance on how states can expand access to comprehensive health care for LGBT patients. The order, among other provisions, also empowers the Department of Health and Human Services to ensure federal health programming does not fund conversion therapy. This move from the White House comes after conservative leaders across several states have targeted trans people, and in particular trans children's, access to gender-affirming health care, like hormone blockers and reassignment surgery. Just last week, a Texas judge blocked the state's child abuse investigations into parents who consented to gender-affirming care for their trans children. According to the Texas Tribune, cases have been opened against at least nine families so far. Joining us now to weigh in is our rising panel. Jordan Cheriton is a journalist and CEO of Status Quo News. And Emily Jasinski is culture editor at The Federalist and co-host of Rising Fridays. Welcome to you both. Morning. Yeah, uh, good morning. So, Emily, you know, I, I think, you know, I know where you stand on a lot of these issues, and I, I have some similar concerns about, certainly about doing irreversible procedures with young kids. I, you know, I want to, I, I think they shouldn't necessarily be affirmed in every choice they, they make or every idea they have, and I, I want to make sure it's very thoroughly vetted before they go forward with anything. I, I do not love at all the uh, kind of investigations into families for this kind of thing because, you know, child protective services is a nightmare and actually can be deployed just as easily against conservative parents for doing things that that uh, that progressive people in the state don't like. So are you, are you familiar with with what's going on in that area of it? Well, actually, Child Protective Services has, in fact, been used in the other direction um, in, towards parents who have not pursued gender-affirming care in different states. I think I, the last one I was reading about was in Washington state. So you're right about that, Robbie. Um, but, you know, what what you're talking about gets to, and that as you're reading the introduction, it's just... It, setting it, it it clearly shows how sad it is that these children have been caught in a political tug of war um and it's with laws and executive orders and everything like one being layered on top of the other that goes back of this and this and this um i think it's like incredibly sad the new york times had a very long essay um just yesterday actually it was more of an investigation than an essay um, yeah, it was a great that piece. actually yeah, it talked to a lot of people who have provided uh, care for people who identify as transgender in their childhood over the years, like over, in some cases, a 20-year span, and how certain things have changed, how certain things have, t have stayed the same. Um, and so I, I think it's inevitable that politics got involved in this, but we're definitely getting to um, a place where neither side is putting the, the children first and the interests of the children first as the political football just sort of gets kicked around. Jordan, is it true that it is a matter of course that this become politicized, that it's expected that this has become politicized? Because I, I got to confess that every time I find myself talking about the particular needs of a very narrow portion of the population in the middle of a crisis at the level of the crisis we're currently in, I am, I'm, I'm, I'm never not surprised that so much of our national conversation and so much of the political polarization is happening along the lines of what is happening to the transgender community. It does feel like this executive order is responsive, is reactive to the 
uh, enormous amount of attention that the right has decided to play uh, to pay to transgender kids uh, in particular. Um, what, what do you make of this order, uh, and how do you think the the liberals and the, the, the broad left should be responding to the uh, focus on trans kids in particular? Well, I'm glad to see President Biden uh, knows how to sign an executive order. So let's uh, pressure him to do it on economic <laughs> issues as well. Uh, but, you know, I was in Florida. I covered uh, the what they're calling the parental rights bill, uh, more commonly known as the don't say gay bill. And I think what you're seeing, honestly, is uh, what conservatives and Republicans have always done, which is while they're screwing their own voters economically, uh, they dangle some culture wars over them. I mean, in Florida in particular, uh, inflation is higher than the national average. Property taxes are through the roof. Uh, DeSantis has given $624 million in tax breaks to wealthy corporations recently. I mean, I could go down the list of economically the problems in Florida. Uh, housing is out of control. Rent is out of control. Uh, but DeSantis, to you know, play to a national base, uh, is targeting LGBTQ, transgender, math textbooks. I mean, it, it's kind of crazy in terms of the economic crisis uh, what uh, DeSantis and other Republican governors like him, Greg Abbott as well in Texas, are doing. Uh, that doesn't mean there aren't uh, legitimate concerns, you know, how young uh, should uh, a child be allowed to start these uh, transitioning services? I think there's legitimate uh, discussion with that. But how transgender people have become kind of just the sacrificial lambs for the culture wars, I have no idea. But I I've met a lot of them, and a lot of them are suicidal, uh, extremely depressed uh, because of all of this. Well, well, can I jump in there? Go ahead, Emily. I, I just want to jump in there because I think it's really important to say that that actually also goes in the other direction. This is a culture war issue that the left dangles to distract from their terrible economic policies as well. And in the case of the right, they're responding. They're on defense to exactly what Jordan just mentioned, which is that there are legitimate concerns to be had. That doesn't mean the right isn't going to overreach in certain instances for the sake of political expediency, sure. But it's also on this issue, not just the right. I've talked to parents in my reporting who are fully supportive of the LGBT LGBT cause, but whose children, whose child was caught in a really sad situation personally, and they want, for instance, the right to know what's happening at the school with their child, and that's what some of these bills target. Again, that's not to say that they're going to be there's going to be no overreach, but I really think it's important that the right is responding to culture war issues that are often very much ginned up by policies on the left, and that's what I think you can also see with this executive order by President Biden, which again, uh, if you if you come from the perspective of the left on uh, trans children issues, you might say that this is a, a substantive um, action. But at the same time, it is a response for the sake of politics, too. And so I, I don't think it's totally fair to just put this on the right for dangling a culture war issue in front of their voters to distract from economics. I think the left is doing the same thing in the yeah. other Emily, direction. What, what is the, the right federal response. or state? Can you point to the federal or state policy uh, that the left has pursued with respect to uh, gender affirming care or transitions that might have sparked all of this? Is there, there was, yeah. was there a specific yeah. policy? Yeah, absolutely. The Obama administration uh, did this via a dear colleague letter um, in the last that, year. That wasn't a uh, policy, Emily. That was, that was to your point, a, no, a letter a, no, that was recommending... A no, it's a policy. How's it not a policy? It's, it's a policy well, there's a big difference they between that. Federal funds, federal I, funds were then hanging on yeah. whether or not you can 
complied with a Dear Colleague letter. That's the problem with right. Dear Colleague well, letters. That, that letter, if I recall correctly, had to do with recommendations to colleges and how they would handle... No, 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 That's no, the no. 2011 the, one. The 2016, the 2016 one, right. it was in May. It was issued by John King, and it said that you had to read gender identity into Title IX. Um, right. And so that was a policy you had to, in order to receive federal funds as a school, you had to comply with the reading of gender identity into Title IX. And that's actually really what started a lot of these battles just in 2016, right. um, because schools were sort of racing to comply with it. And then you had states either trying to catch up or trying to do their own thing because the federal policy, and Robbie, you covered this a lot at the time, because yeah. the federal policy came down via the letter that sort of skirted the legislative. It was basically doing what the Equality Act would have done, but it did it via just a letter um, from the Secretary of Education at the time. And that did, uh, it, that actually contributed it's, to a lot of the confusion. Exactly. It's disguised as mere guidance, but because it carries the force of the sure. executive branch, no, no school to, wants to go up against it. What does it mean to read gender identity into Title IX? that you conflate sex uh, with gender identity. So when you're reading on right. the basis of sex, you also have to read on the basis of gender identity, which I think, you know, it's, it sounds like one thing, but the implications for it, um, especially in like different localities with, with locker rooms and bathrooms and sports teams were extremely confusing. And that's how um, a lot of these battles or these skirmishes in the culture war, I think ended up popping up because there was confusion. And then the kids got used as political footballs because there was this, uh, the federal funding, which is really important to a lot of schools that was being dangled over them um, in order to comply, they had to sort of figure out what that meant and figure out how they could comply. And it just sparked a lot on the state it's a, level. It's a 50-year-old law. It's actually turned 50 this month, I think, uh, or is about to turn 50, that clearly was never designed to cover the kind of cases we're talking about now. So administrators uh, are just kind of making it, I mean, they have a vision of how they would like the law to be, and they're just kind of declaring it. And it's so it's, it, it is actually at the level of right, federal um, uh, battle over this uh, instead of having any kind of legislator work through it. Um, right. So I know, Jordan, that you were, you mentioned earlier that you were talking specifically to trans students in, in Florida. Um, what, what were you being told there? I, I thought we had a clip that we were going to play, play from that. Okay, let's take a listen. Like, everyone I know is suicidal. I'm on antidepressants. Everyone I know has, like, it's, it's terrible. I have terrib a bag of medication. Yeah, exactly. Every single person is either on antidepressants or, like, extremely suicidal. And that's, that's where we're at right now. Florida already has the highest LGBTQ suicide rate of any state. And queer teens are four times more likely to commit suicide. And they know that because I... I said that when, and I was one of hundreds that said that, um, testifying in the Senate and the House of Representatives. I went door to door talking to senators and representatives, Republican and Democrat, telling them these statistics and telling them personal stories. They heard me, they listened, and they voted for it anyways, because they know what they're doing and they are trying to kill us. So Emily, where's the balance there? There's a lot of conversation about what's best for the kid. And there does seem to be some inconsistency with respect to kind of a conservative approach that says, well, we'll leave things to families, we'll leave things to individuals to decide, and there's uh, interference via law from the state. You know, given what he's saying about the um, highest suicide rates in Florida specifically, and perhaps in other localities where there are these um, targeted bills to the LGBT community. 
How do you balance the perceived interest of kids versus um, this idea that they need to be protected from the decisions being made with their families and their doctors? Yeah, that clip is just heartbreaking. Um, And actually, the Heritage Foundation, love it or hate it, released a study this week that I think is pretty good. It's not definitive, but it's evidence in the other direction that there's a correlation between states that have um, allowed over the years uh, some of these puberty blocking uh, treatments to be in effect and the teen suicide rate. And so it's not, again, I don't think it's definitive or conclusive, uh, but I will say that there is evidence in both directions of that. It is like not conclusive that the suicide rate spikes if the gender affirming care is not provided and it is not conclusive that it won't go in the other direction either either so um all that said i think that's part of what's really really difficult about this subject Mm -hmm. is that it's it's really like these these treatments are really new and it's hard to have long-term studies on the effects of children um and so inevitably children be end up being used as guinea pigs um before their own brains are developed before their bodies are fully developed and so the bottom line is I want what's best for children, and I don't care about the politics or the ideology. If the study shows that this is best for children, like, absolutely. Um, If I was presented with evidence that this is going to prevent suicide um, and conclusive evidence over long term, my goodness, yeah, let's prevent suicide. Um, But it it is hard when you don't have long term research. But I I think that is a great clip from, from Jordan, and it's hard to watch and hard to listen to those very sad stories. Right, especially well, we're seeing the. Can I, I just yeah, we want to Jordan or get your response. I, I think Emily's right that we're seeing you know higher teen, de- or at least in the the data, we're seeing higher rates of teen depression and suicide along the same kind of time period. That you know, certainly you might think that we should be more um, uh, uh, more affirming of trans youth, of LGBT youth, but I have to think we're more affirming of it today than we were 20 years ago, and yet the depression and suicide rates are actually getting worse among this cohort. Yeah, well, one thing you didn't see is uh, their classmates were heckling them and bullying them while I was doing the interview. That's another thing. I don't know if it's an heritage study. I mean, LGBTQ kids are uh, bullied, uh, including trans kids. A lot of them are thrown out of their homes. Uh, One of the uh, kids I was interviewing uh, was basically homeless because their parents didn't accept them. So there's a lot of factors that go into uh, LGBTQ depression, suicidal ideation, separate from puberty blockers, uh, you know, the medical component of transitioning, that's just societal. And frankly, uh, I totally agree with Emily. You know, of course, the Democrats would much rather send fundraisers out on Roe v. Wade, uh, attacks on LGBTQ people than the fundraisers they're doing in wine caves. But they are not uh, they are not passing laws to, you know, block health care for transitioning. They're not passing laws to you know, basically put a gag order so those children can't speak about their weekend uh, picnic if they have two, uh, you know, two, two dads or two moms. Uh, so, you know, in terms of the extreme of, of what's going on, it's Republican governors that are targeting uh, these kids. I, I agree that the Democrats are glad to talk about this rather than their neoliberal policies that are crushing people. Uh, but people mm-hmm. should realize that you know, it's it's these teenagers and young kids that are the sacrificial lambs. It's hard enough being a teenager. I had depression when I was a teenager, not dealing with this. So I really think uh, we should stop with this culture war attacking LGBTQ people, transgender people, uh, leave it to families and, you know, leave it to experts, not government officials on what is the appropriate age uh, that 
kids should be able to uh, yeah. be even entertaining uh, transitioning and those kind of things. Well, I can get on board with that. Jordan, Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Thank Thanks. you. And we'll have more Rising right after this. America's youngest population will soon be able to get the COVID-19 shot if they want. So until now, babies, toddlers, and preschoolers were not eligible for a COVID vaccine. But yesterday, the Food and Drug Administration voted to approve the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines for children as young as six. Here to discuss this latest development is science journalist Catherine J. Wu. She has a PhD in microbiology and immunobiology. Welcome to the show, Catherine. Thank you so much for having me. So help us understand the application here. Uh, a lot of folks believed that the uh, negative impacts of COVID were pretty minimal on younger folks in the first place. That's why they weren't prioritized. What do folks hope to gain by vaccinating their kids? Yeah, it's a really important question. And I think uh, a lot of parents have actually been done a disservice by hearing that message repeatedly since the start of the pandemic. You know, it is true that younger children are at less risk of, you know, really severe outcomes from COVID-19 than older adults. But I think what's actually important to keep in mind is that's not necessarily the best comparison to make. What we do have to think about is the outcomes that kids were having before the pandemic. They were not dying as frequently. They were not being hospitalized as frequently. They weren't getting things like long COVID and that rare inflammatory condition called MISC. And they could, you know, return to most of that life if they were to be vaccinated. There is an immense threat posed to kids by COVID-19 and the vaccine is something that turns this into a vaccine preventable disease, but only if kids are able to get that shot as soon as possible. What about the idea that it's hard to see for very young kids, it's hard to see because they are not, you know, hospitalized or die at you know near anywhere near approaching the rates of older americans that it's hard in, in the data to see you know discernible necessarily improvements and then also you know versus the concerns that some have and again i think they're they're you know very mild concerns you know uh, negative experiences with the vaccine among these kids but if you you know if you don't if it's hard to see a lot of good anyway, then it, they, you were seeing a, a little bit of concern and a very little bit of, of good. The calculus for whether to do it seems uh, much more difficult than for, you know, a 65-plus American who, you know, obviously has a, 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 a very a much more substantial chance of a negative health outcome if they, if they contract COVID than they would if they've been vaccinated. Yeah, you bring up a really good point, you know, that basically, you know, anytime you want to roll out a vaccine, you want that risk benefit math to work out. And it's a lot harder to do when, you know, you're comparing very few outcomes in one hand with very few outcomes in the other hand. That is absolutely true. But actually, uh, not having that many hospitalizations or deaths in the trials has been an issue from the start, even in older age groups. And that's why, you know, vaccine makers actually, you know, initially looked at efficacy against any symptomatic disease. So if you just feel 
feel sick and you test positive for this coronavirus, that counts as one of the outcomes that they're looking at. Does the vaccine reduce the incidence? And actually with the kids trials, knowing that kids are less likely to get sick in general, what uh, the vaccine makers did is this technique called immunobridging. They looked at, you know, we'll, well, we know this vaccine works well in adults and we know we get this really great antibody response in people who get the vaccine and are older than 18. Can we produce a similar level of antibodies in these kids if we're using this lower dose and sort of use that as a way to say, well, if A equals B and B equals C, maybe A equals C. You know, it's not a direct way to do it, but it's a way to run these trials without recruiting, you know, many, many, many more children than they would have had to. Uh, but, you know, also there are concerns about vaccine safety. But uh, what I just mentioned, that they cut the amount of vaccine down shot for kids, that was done deliberately to minimize side effects as much as possible. They were looking for the minimal dose that would still produce an adequate immune response in these kids, knowing that, you know, really, really shooting low there would minimize the chances of side effects. And they really did not see anything concerning. Some kids got fever but that happens quite often with any sort of pediatric vaccine. And they didn't see any cases of myocarditis, you know, that heart inflammation that has very rarely cropped up with some of these mRNA vaccines. And I think what's actually really encouraging, I know it was a long wait for parents and it was very frustrating for many people who were waiting for these vaccines to finally come out. But we now have more than a year and a half of data to back up that these vaccines are safe in every age group tested, and they should be the safest in the group that gets the least vaccine seen in each shot, and that is going to be this youngest group of kids. When I looked at the data on, you know, which kids were getting hospitalized with COVID, it, it looked like you, you had uh, a majority, perhaps even an overwhelming majority, with uh, underlying health conditions or with obesity or severe obesity. Um, is, is there is there any thought or, or, or discussion about, you know, recommending the vaccine Specifically in those cases, you know, if you have a, a, a child, a baby, a toddler, a teen, whatever, who is at elevated risk because they have a health condition, then that calculus might be very, very different than just, you know, than a, than a child who doesn't have one of those uh, underlying uh, issues. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that the way to look at this is just reminding ourselves that risk is a spectrum. It's not like get the vaccine or don't, but who may need the vaccine the most. But I think the baseline uh, premise here is gonna be that every kid who gets this vaccine is going to benefit from it. And there are gonna be certain groups of kids who benefit even more because they belong to a riskier group. But I think we also do have to keep in mind that even though there is uh, maybe a higher chance of having those uh, outcomes like hospitalization and death in kids who have those underlying health conditions, which is also true in older kids and in adults, um, there are also uh, things that kids can suffer from when they catch this virus that aren't really well understood in terms of risk factors. Long COVID, for instance, MISC, for instance, uh, it's not really well understood. They don't seem to have the same exact risk factors uh, that seem to land kids in the hospital with, you know, severe respiratory disease. Uh, that's really complicated. And so any kid is going to have some risk of having a bad outcome with COVID-19. And that's really important to keep in mind. Um, you know, I think it would be wrong to assume that only a subset of kids need this vaccine and everyone else is fine. Every kid is going to have some risk. But of course, you know, it is especially important for kids with underlying risk factors to go out and get those shots as soon as they can.
Catherine, can you talk a little bit more about long COVID in MISE? Because I don't think we've talked a lot about it uh, on this show, and there is some skepticism about whether or not this is, you know, real, if it's uh, COVID-related, the, pe- the feelings that people are having, if it's uh, symptoms that emerge out of the lockdown or something else that's going on. And there are some hesitancy from folks who think that maybe an emphasis on long COVID is a kind of stopgap measure after a lot of the promises that were made about the vaccine in terms of its ability to stop transmission in the pandemic turned out to not to be true. Now, some people think the long COVID is just another fear tactic to say, okay, go ahead and get the vaccine, even though it doesn't necessarily keep you from getting COVID. Um, and even though uh, it, it is, uh, doesn't uh, affect transmiss- transmissibility the way we thought it would. Yeah, so, uh, you know, there are sort of two very different conditions that we're talking about here. MISC and long COVID are very, very, very different. And I I will say, you know, both are not completely understood uh, in this population. We are still, I think, working with a paucity of data. Uh, But, you know, MISC is this rare inflammatory condition, but it has impacted thousands of kids in the U.S. And it is really, really serious. Uh, It's not always clear, you know, you can't look at a child on the street and say, oh, you know, this child clearly has conditions X, Y, and Z. They are at high risk for MISC. Uh, it can crop up in, you know, healthy kids who are one day, you know, playing in the park. They catch this virus, and a few weeks later, they are, you know, having this, um, you know, widespread inflammation that can be incredibly dangerous. Uh, and this is something that pediatric ID specialists are really trying to understand at this point. But the wonderful thing is there have been studies, especially looking at older kids uh, who have already had this vaccine available to them for months, showing that vaccination does really reduce uh, the likelihood of a child developing MISC. Um, there is also a little bit of a positive data with long COVID. It's not as well, it's not well understood even in adults, especially how likely it is, but vaccination does seem to reduce the likelihood in adults and there's every expectation that it would do so in kids. It's important to emphasize here that we're not expecting it to completely eliminate the risk of long COVID, but there are very few interventions in life that can completely eliminate the risk of anything. Uh, you know, long COVID is complicated. Uh, certainly uh, no one is arguing that every child who catches the coronavirus is going to get long COVID. But if there is a chance of reducing that, that's pretty important. Uh, I've talked to a lot of pediatricians who have treated kids, um, you know, who are experiencing these long-term symptoms. And it's not just that, you know, your kid has cold symptoms for months on end. It really affects their cognitive development. It affects the way that they're going to be able to play and interact with their friends. And these kids are so young. This is a chronic condition and everything we understand in adults, this is something that could potentially affect kids for years on end. It's just a crucial point in their lifetime. You also did bring up mental health, and it absolutely is difficult to diagnose something like long COVID, uh, you know, something that can have so many different symptoms, and it's not always easy for a little kid to articulate what's going on uh, with how they're feeling and how they're interacting with their world. But I think it is important to think about, you know, vaccination will also have these amazing community level benefits. Having reduced transmission, even if it doesn't go completely to zero, vaccination should be expected to make kids less sick, the virus less easy to pass on, which means fewer outbreaks, fewer classroom closures, fewer teachers and school nurses leaving their posts or being out sick, fewer parents being pulled out of work to care for their kids. Kids will be able to resume more normalcy. They'll be able to interact more safely with each other. And we know we are having a huge mental crisis, mental health crisis in this country. We're hoping that, you know, vaccination will help chip away at some of that burden. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. 
Absolutely. Thank you for having me. We appreciate it. And we'll be back with more Rising right after this. Substack, the platform, has come under fire recently. It's been accused by some critics of being, quote, a haven for extremists. But Substack is fighting back against these claims. Vice President of the platform, Lulu Chang Maservi, tweeted, We keep seeing false claims about Substack that seem designed to mislead. Here's just one recent example, which the outlet refuses to correct. We believe the best way to fight misinformation is through open debate, so here are the facts. She joins us now to discuss the attacks waged against Substack. Welcome, Lulu. Thank you very much for having me, guys. I got to say, it sometimes feels like when the mainstream media is having conversations about these new media platforms, it almost feels like they want there to be a stigma uh, on the platforms and for there to be a siloing of a kind of person that that posts on those kinds of platforms. Am I being overly um, paranoid here? I'm pretty paranoid myself. So I can't speak to their motivations, but I can um, say that I've observed certain narratives taking hold. And so one of the narratives is there are things on here. We have the vague sense that there's things that uh, people shouldn't be seeing or that we don't like. And I, one, I can guarantee you there's stuff that you don't like or I don't like. There's, there should be things that anybody doesn't like. But two, um, the reason that narrative bothers us sometimes is it actually ignores and glosses over the accomplishments of people who don't fit that narrative. So there are amazing underrepresented minority voices on the platform doing incredible work, building out their media properties from scratch that just get ignored. Charlotte Clymer is one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite Substack publishers who writes about LGBTQ issues. And uh, she's a trans woman, a veteran, a former politico. I mean, a very interesting character that totally gets glossed over because not totally, but too often, because she doesn't fit the narrative. Uh, Parker Malloy is writing about politics, had a recent very impactful piece about attacks uh, during Pride. Uh, Emily Nunn is creating a media property, writing only about salads, huge success on Substack. And because they don't fit this narrative that people are trying to push, um, they're not front and center as much as they should be. That's one thing that bothers me. And the second thing is something like extremist is in the eye of the beholder. So the the screenshot that you guys showed, that's not news. That's one person's opinion. And it's, uh, I think, fair game to debate an opinion. Yeah, it, it seems like Substack has taken, and this is why I wanted to ha have you on, because uh, you're in some ways a notable dissenter from a, a kind of new regime of, oh, no, you know, what are people saying on our platform? We have to really guardrail this. You know, I'm talking about other social media companies, other places that get a lot of criticism as well from the mainstream media, from people who are very concerned about disinformation and extremism. And, you know, what if you just let people talk and discuss and be very dangerous? And and you guys at Substack are, are taking a, you know, a somewhat different view, it, it seems, and saying, you know, we, we want there to, to be debates. We want there to be a genuine a range of opinions. And yeah, like in the example you gave, pro there pro I'm sure there are some. There probably aren't. I don't think there are very many. You don't hear high profile voices like saying, well, I disagree with Charlotte Clymer or Parker Malloy. So why they don't, how, how dare they have Substacks, but you do hear that often. Uh, that that kind of rhetoric coming from sometimes people in the mainstream media or other places, sometimes Democratic 
political figures saying that, right, people who, who have dissenting views on maybe on COVID, maybe on something else, uh, it's, it's dangerous to allow them uh, to speak openly about it. And, and so can you talk about Substack's philosophy about these things? Yeah. There's no shortage of internet platforms that are very assiduous about censoring things that anyone might consider harmful or dangerous. Twitter has, a, a, I think, a very well-staffed team that is actively uh, kicking people off Twitter for saying the wrong thing. How's that working? Is Twitter a haven for productive debate? Is Twitter a haven of hmm. stability? Is, is that what's happened? Is, is Facebook? And so we've seen this thing tried. Uh, Substack doesn't take a position that uh, everything you're going to see on the internet is good. We take a position that you get to decide what is bad, and then you don't have to look at it. We don't force it into your eyeballs. So a place like Twitter, like, now I'm picking on Twitter now, but a lot of places on the internet, they're hyperactive about trying to take down this and that. I call it censorship whack-a-mole. Um, you're just one by one taking things down but it's not making the platform healthier because the incentives are wrong in the first place. You have a system where people are involuntarily shown without their consent a lot of times, things that are going to make money for advertisers. And then um, you, they can't really opt out as easily. Substack is a place where by default, you're opted out of everything. If you don't like salads, which I kind of don't, even though I love Emily <laughs> Nunn. If you're an anti-salad person like me, you don't have to subscribe to the salad newsletter. I do because it's really good, <laughs> but you don't have to subscribe to anything. Whereas uh, other places on the internet, it's just coming at you and you have to block or mute it one by one. So that's a big difference where you can block anything that you consider harmful or extremist. You get to define what extremism is. Um, salad might be gastronomical extremism for you. Don't read it. Yeah, that's what's so interesting about Substack. In the early days of Substack, the rhetoric was very much about trying to criticize it on the basis of who was on there, right? And so there were a few high profile folks who had left mainstream institutions, arguably because of um, cancel culture or self cancellations or however you want to characterize it, they felt like they were no longer welcome or their views were no longer as welcome in the mainstream institutions and they were able to eke out a living or way more than a living by moving to Substack. And people felt as though it was a way for them to avoid accountability. And that was a little bit of a tell, right? Because ultimately it was institutionalists saying, we don't like the fact that we're not able to impose our worldview on you because there are options for you to continue to write and to have a career and a livelihood outside of these traditional establishment institutions. And some of those people who left, I agree with ideologically. Some of the people who left, I don't agree with ideolog ideologically. But it was pretty obviously about establishment media's uh, fretting that they can no longer have the same kind of control, monopoly over the market than, than they used to have. And I think we're seeing this now as other new platforms come up, whether we're talking about Rumble or what have you, where some of the earlier adopters are used to kind of vilify the entire thing. However, now everyone, it seems, is on Substack. All mm -hmm. of the institutionalists are also on Substack. So someone might have a New York Times column and they also privately have their own Substack column. And I wonder if you've seen a change over time and how Substack is covered as the mainstream actors mm -hmm. who used to be pinning the anti-Substack screeds now have their own pages or columns at Substack. 
Yeah, you pointed out something really important, Brianna, which is that Substack is a really good place for you to go and be in control for yourself. So you control what you're reading, what's being um, shown to you. You control as a writer uh, what you want to say to your audience and how you want to manage your property. It's a very not good place to try to control things on behalf of other people, conversely. Um, over time, when so many people have started to just start their own Substacks, I think we have seen a change in people's appreciation for being in control. It's this it's this sort of intangible thing where we can pitch it, but you don't feel the magic of it until you're actually doing it. We have so many writers that have said, Substack changed my life, and we were trying to tell them, it's going to change your life. It doesn't come across until they've actually experienced the amazing magic of being in control of their fate, of being able to write the things they think are most important, having a direct relationship with their audience where they can take that email list with them anywhere. It's a pension, you know, it's, it's, um, it's financial security for them as a writer. And a lot of times they're making so much more than they were making before because now they're, they're, um, they don't have a ceiling, right? They're not um, subject to a salary cap anymore. And that together is something that when you experience it, you get it. So people have seen religion, um, whereas it hasn't really come across uh, as well when you just describe it, including a lot of people in what we're calling here mainstream media. So I think that there's become a lot more appreciation over time as people just start their own substacks. So Lou, I do have to ask though, is there a, a dark side to that where because the incentive is drawing in subscribers, um, mm. and, and getting, you know, not clicks, but getting people to want a very kind of narrow, ra rather unchallenged view through mm. your single avenue on the, your newsletter on the Substack. Does that create perverse incentives for, for folks to kind of maybe double down in some perhaps potentially toxic, hateful, whatever you want to describe, however you want to describe it, rhetoric. And then what is the line from your perspective, if any, of how, what your responsibility is as a platform host toward that kind of content. Is there a line? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a line. We have a content policy. We have rules. There are things that are not allowed on Substack, um, including if you're going to uh, dox someone or if you're saying, you know, Lulu lives at this address, let's show up with baseball bats, you know, there's, or, you know, send Bitcoin here and I'll send you sunglasses. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's not allowed mm. on Substack. And we look for that, take it down when we see it, people report it. Um, but I think it's worth noting again that the bar for us to intervene is higher here than it is elsewhere because we do make that promise that you get to be in control. You have that direct consensual relationship between the writers and the readers. And it, for us to intervene in that and step between you guys while you're dancing at prom, that, that just takes a lot more than it would in other places. And so I would say that's that's done by design um, around the overall ethos of letting people be in control. Mm -hmm. Well, Lulu, thank you so much uh, for joining us. You know, I, I, Substack is a kind of, like I said, different than a lot of these other uh, platforms. So we wanted to uh, talk a little bit about why that is. And not, not doing a commercial for Substack, I don't have one, uh, et, et cetera. And, and, you know, we'd love to have on guests from some of these other uh, social media companies that have, have different policies. So anyway, thank you so much for, uh, for being with us. Thank you, Ravi. Thank you, Brianna. Appreciate you guys. Well, tomorrow on Rising, Ryan Grimm and Emily Jashinsky will be back in the chairs for Rising Friday, and you'll want to tune into that. And as for us, we will be back uh, next week. You know you need to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any of this content. And 
If you're like me and you like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts in audio form. Mm -hmm. And we don't know where Kim is at the moment. She's on her honeymoon, I believe, but uh, she will be back at some point. So we're wishing her a good honeymoon, and we'll see you all shortly. Bye-bye.